Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag. And I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right? I mean, no, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays a means floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get a mean in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show Tom, what is less entertaining, fishing or watching other people fish on television? Kevin, the question is, what's more entertaining, fishing or watching people fish on television? I love fishing. And like watching people fish is like a huge YouTube sensation. So Kevin, you're totally out of your depths here. I love fishing. I'm going to take you fishing one day. Is this in the same um, YouTube tradition as watching people unwrap presents? Unboxing. Unboxing, sorry. No, look, Tom, I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. I think you need to ply me with like oysters and rosé and take me out on a boat when it's 79 degrees and, and not humid and I will, I will be very happy. Um, I, I, I promise to give you an opportunity for education here. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Ornovitz. And I'm Tom Haverstrow. Tom, gone fishing. Everyone's gone fishing. We're going to take a bunch of people on a boat and watch them turn green and put sticks in the water. Uh, but all seriousness, <laughs> actually, Tom, as you know, I do love fish. So I actually was very yes. interested. Um, I, I, I thought this was, uh, in terms of challenges, I, I love seeing what people can do with seafood. I, I was actually having this conversation yesterday with a friend who recommended in Dallas where I'm going uh, this weekend to sort of a this new red sauce Italian restaurant and I got to go and I'm sort of like I'm over red sauce Italian that I want to go to restaurants that can do things that I can't perfectly execute at home and like that is like a perfectly seared piece of fish you know and, and so I am sort of very pro the the substance of this challenge I just got to be admit Tom I was uh, doing a little expense report during watching these contestants fish I don't want to watch the deadly catch and watch a bunch of people cook and I don't want to watch top chef and watch a bunch of people fish but I understand well I love to fish and I actually have fished in the gulf tuna fishing and grouper um in in the gulf of Mexico went to my buddy Brian uh, Hickson's place in, in Alabama and we went out and the cool thing is Kevin you'll appreciate this to get the best fishing there's this almost this secret grid of spots hot spots for fishing that other fishermen will not let other fishermen know where where they are you just have those coordinates you have a coordinate system and they just kind of flag their favorite spots and so there's almost this like um, bait and switch that happens no pun intended where the boats will go out and then try to not have anyone tail them or see them go to their favorite fishing spots that they have on their coordinate system. So you'll go out and you'll see these like big fishing boats, like 
slowly go out and then just dart off into another direction to try to, to try to shake whoever's tailing them. And then they go to their favorite spots. But the other thing is cool is they'll, they'll like, they'll drop like buses to the bottom of the ocean, the Gulf to create aquatic life and to create fishing spots. So the fish, it's just very much the, the, the food chain, right? It's like the the bus rusts and then it gets all this uh, corals on it and then fish feed on that coral and then it's the sharks come and it creates its own ecosystem in the middle of the Gulf. And also the best fishing is sometimes in by oil rigs, which have this loud alarm that like ear piercingly loud alarm that goes beep, beep, just nonstop all day long. And when you get out there on your fishing boat, Kevin, you like almost have to plug your ears because it's so loud. And then this, this amazing brain phenomenon happens where your, your mind adapts to the sound and suddenly you can't hear it anymore. You forget that the sound is there and you're just fishing for hours. So basically mind, mind control by our largest multinational corporations. Maybe this is not, you know, Havana syndrome. Maybe this is Gulf syndrome, Gulf of Mexico syndrome. I don't know, but... I've always thought about that trip because when you catch like a, a bluefin tuna and you haul it into the boat and you're fighting it for, you know, as, as long as like an hour and then you get to like actually cut into the tuna and actually eat sashimi tuna, toro tuna right there, right there. You catch the fish and then you eat it. It is so, so amazing. So I just... Kevin, one day we'll, we'll do it and you'll just have the best sashimi of your life. It doesn't get fresher than that. All right, Tom, I, I, will, I will make this pilgrimage to the Outer Banks or whichever uh, BP approved or whatever lovely so- sonic wonderland. Um, we, we will do this. But um, uh, how do you think uh, – see, I cannot grade the fishing expertise of our contestants. Can you give us a quick rundown on – sort of what you saw in the boat? Because I just saw a bunch of sticks. Yeah, so this is this is tough. I mean, the producers, magical elves have to be on pins and needles when they send them out on the boat. Because when you don't when you don't have control over the fish, you might end up with no fish whatsoever. You might totally get skunked. And so they were I was I was actually panicking watching this. I know you're not a fisherman, but me, I was like, oh my God, they're gonna totally strike out. And they eventually did get those, uh, those bowl redfish. And, uh, they talked about that sometimes a little chewy, um, not, not the best fish to eat, but they got some catfish and it looked, look, Sarah, I feel for Sarah because that's a really lonely feeling. Everyone else on the boat is catching fish and you just can't seem to get, uh, you know, one reeled in. And she finally did. And it's a cool experience. You could tell Tom Colicchio has been out on a boat a few times. He was enjoying himself. And I, I look, I, I really liked that first part of it. I know if you're not into fishing, it might not be your thing. Um, but it was probably cool for Buddha to get out there. And I do kind of like the whole hunter-gatherer aspect of like what you fish, what you catch is what you're going to cook. Um, and so that was, that was pretty cool. But basically, they were able to get their food and bring it home. And it wasn't, it wasn't tuna, right? It wasn't like the best fish on a menu, but it was enough thankfully enough volume for them to cook. And I think when you're cooking this type of food, um, you know, you need to have some expertise in cooking seafood. And it seemed like everyone except for Mr. Nick, Nick had a really, really tough time with this episode. Yeah. Um, actually I should say as much as I'm railing on the first 15 minutes and I don't particularly like watching people fish and, and frankly, I also miss a quick fire. I, I love an episode 47 minutes of top chef where you get two true competitions. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's why we're watching. However, I did really like a lot of about a lot about this episode. I mean, the first is, is I think it, it's something for the, the producers maybe to remember. I really enjoy watching the young chefs sort of cook for the true luminaries. You can mm. see like the anxiety and the awe and the giddiness and, and, and really the combination of all those emotions at once when like Daniel Balud is sitting at the table. Like, oh my God, I get to say, put on my resume, as Evelyn said, that I got to cook Daniel Balud a taco. Or like I, yeah. or Sarah said, I, I, I'm cooking for one of the two best chefs and the two of the best chefs in the world. Like, and this is no disrespect. I love the Top Chef family judges. By the way, I, I think Stephanie was a great judge. Um, and, and so many of them are. But I do think in addition to kind of incorporating a lot of the guest judges as being former seventh place contestants on some random season. That's great. That's fine. I do think 
the show should never get away, especially as we get late into the season, with the gravitas that comes with having a balloon or or, or or whoever it is, an Alice Waters, whoever it is. Like it could be um, just just one of the great living chefs. There's an extra event. There's a there, it becomes a weightier episode. It becomes more dramatic. And I just think that's something I really appreciated about this episode. I thought the challenge was challenging. I mean, two, uh, they did not have a lot of time. You could see Buddha is one of the better time managers I think we've seen on the show. You know, I mean, what was it a couple of weeks ago, Tom? We were watching him. He's like, yeah, I had 30 minutes extra to spare or whatever it was. I mean, the guy's basically doing his, you know, is, is working the crossword while everybody else is kind of still plating. So I, I think that's that was interesting to see him struggle. Uh, it was clearly a real challenge. So there was a lot about this episode I, I didn't like up top, but I really did kind of get into the fact that it was a real challenge. I also like the fact that the judges really changed the criteria on them. It you know I love that they said to a few of the chefs, "Hey, we're in the bottom. We're in the final five. Don't yep. be handing me a freaking taco. Um, this is not this is not the time for fancy toast, Tom." Not the time for fancy toast. This is the <laughs> time. the time for fancy toast. I Kevin, know, come I on. Know. Uh, <laughs> but I think that the, I liked that the the judges really laid down the gauntlet in this episode, which is, you know, and and I'm a huge Evelyn fan, and you, you heard I've been I, I've been un, my unyielding praise of her. Um, but I agreed, and then while I was watching her develop the menu, I'm like, really, a seafood stew, uh, tacos al pastor, except fish, um, with with the requisite pineapple, like. I was bored. I was with bored Balud, by her choices. With Daniel Balud as the as the guest judge, yeah, you're going to do like, taco and a fish stew that didn't have much fish in it, right? And I and I loved what what Padma said, and she did it, you know, not in in malice, but actually, I think you know what seemed might have seemed like an insult was actually a compliment, which was you can cook tacos in your sleep. Like if Evelyn's going, you've mentioned it, Tommy. You have been on this train for several weeks now, Tom Haberstrow. Buddha is as big a favorite going into a final five or six as we have seen in recent mm. years. And if Evelyn wants a shot, unless she just wants the sort of nice consolation prize of I acquitted myself well in the finals and I didn't screw up but I didn't win, she is going to have to dig a little deeper. I love that Buddha took some uh, something a standard like fish and chips and kind of elevated it. That's something to do. And and we will talk about Sarah, who is, as far as I'm concerned, a further evidence that that she has been like seasoned well, no pun intended, in in in, in last chance kitchen. And also, boy, we've missed her. Boy, the season I think would have been more fun had she been around on the in 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 the on the varsity team. Yeah, it was cool to see her in, uh, interactions with Tom um, on the boat, and I got to say, her interaction with Buddy, uh, <laughs> Buddy the fish guy, who is you know just your your portsmith your portsman who's just oh, been living on the docks his entire life t- teaching them how to cut a fish and uh she's like asking questions about can i smoke this fish and the guy goes if you can get it lit you can smoke anything and it was just a great line and uh of course it was with sarah who ha- had a great appreciation for for that kind of humor and look i think um i think i want to stick with evan evelyn here for for a moment is you know, she was in the middle and Sarah and Buddha came out on top and Nick and Damar were in the bottom. And Evelyn, I, I, I don't want to say that she feels like she's almost happy to be here rather than happy to compete. You know, like there's a little bit of me that feels like this journey that she's on is kind of like in the Ashley category. Where I didn't really feel like Ashley was in that tier that she, she wasn't a title contender, right? That we say in NBA uh, lore. I think when you look at Evelyn, I want to see a little bit more of that. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go win this thing. And Buddha, I see it every time he puts out a dish is he wants to win this competition. Sarah showed that she can and will win uh, a competition with this challenge. And Evelyn, <coughs> I, I totally agree with the judge's response, which is that this felt extremely safe. These both incredibly safe dishes, both of them, one, one, you should at least go for it. And both of them, it seemed like she was having a very high floor, but a very low ceiling. And if it weren't for Damar and Nick, who both um, had issues here, uh, I think Evelyn could have gone home with the, with pretty, yeah. I don't know, rudimentary dishes there. Right. I mean, I think in a final four, she would have been clearly in the chopping block. And and uh, and look, it's something I want the show to continue to do. I mean, we've talked about it. it's been a little soft, but I really liked that the judges elevated it. That, that you know, um, and, and maybe 
look, uh, I mean, the incentives get very real very quickly. By the way, can I just sort of, and I know there was COVID to consider, and I, I do not, this is not a commentary on my feelings about Tucson, where I've always Oh, we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Tom, Tom. <laughs> okay, they've been to here. Tuscany. <laughs> they've been to Macau. They've been of the world over. Ladies and gentlemen, and behind <laughs> curtain number two, an all-expense-paid trip to Tucson. What, Youngstown, Ohio wasn't available? They couldn't get the hotel rooms? I mean, come on. Look, I, I imagine it was a COVID concern. Um, clearly it was. And and I don't fault the, the show for that, obviously. But I have to say, can you imagine the disappointment? Like, Because I was excited because I love when they change scenery and you get into you, yeah. Like they're poking around mozzarella farms in Tuscany and are doing things in Macau and like these great markets. Um, and instead they're going to Tucson. Okay, I burst out laughing when that happened because I knew exactly how you feel. I was so excited to hear your take on the Tucson trip and the finale because, you know, they had not much to work with here with the audio where the reactions were, I think, I think Emily goes, I've always wanted to go to Arizona. And I'm like, not, I mean, Tucson, look, Padma mentioned it. It's one of the two cities in America that have a UNESCO um, badge of honor. Um, a gas, a, a grastonomic uh, notable city or whatever it is. Yeah, and San Antonio is the other, by the way. Okay, so I, I, I'm looking at a page right now. It's a gastronomy-based economy, Tucson is. I didn't know this. Is um, it? The United I- Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization um, – it makes they, – they are basically credentialed as a uh, a gastronomy base in Tucson and San Antonio. I had no idea about this and frankly, I don't think the chefs even knew about this. They're, they're, this is their industry and I don't think the chefs realize that like this is a thing and that Tucson right. is one of the central parts of that thing. All right. So um, it is actually interesting because I, I, I hear the cities. The first one was uh, Papayan in Colombia, sort of central Colombia, foothills in the Andes. Um, and then uh, Jeng- Chengdu, which is a great choice because like, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, like in, in cities like Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, there's been a real um, Szechuanese cu- cuisine. It's sort of been the cuisine of the 2010s, right? Like we started seeing, I mean, Szechuan cooking became extremely hot. Uh, no pun intended. Um, you know, Bergen in in Norway, actually a great music city. Um, but I think in terms of seafood and um, seafood research, that that's a big one. Rasht in Iran, um, uh, Tucson, Alba, which I have been to and had probably the best meal of my life, literally mm. the best meal of my life in okay in Alba in in, in the Piedmont of Italy, um, known for its white truffles. Uh, Bergamo, where they've been actually, I think you know for cheese production, Macau, where they've been. Um, uh, we have, uh, Belém is, uh, Brazilian. Uh, what else? Hello listener. Guess who's back. It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about butcher box. Butcher box is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging, It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Hello, listener. 
I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that we at Cinephobe love our pets. Zach and Boogie are inseparable. I've got two cats and a dog. And Amin is giving his best ass on performance to convince dog owners that he loves their pet. Hey, Noodle. Hey, boy. How you doing? And Noodle's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Which is why today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. For many pet parents, summer is all about making travel plans like adventuring through the national parks, visiting pet-friendly beaches, or road tripping across the country. Wherever your journeys take you and your furry friend, you can help protect them along the way with the plan from ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are. Because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for your eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash dings. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Uh, we have uh, Florinopolis. Um, Whoa. No, actually, there are three I, other cities. I'll, 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 I thought that was a Greek city. It's a Brazilian city. Who knew? Um, and uh, Hyderabad, obviously, in India. Um, is another so that that's sort of uh, that, that oh actually there's a whole list never mind I'm not even yeah there's a whole big oh, list okay, okay. I'm not, I'm not and which it. makes it even worse that they're going because it just it doesn't seem all that like exclusive if there's like a thousand cities on this list and there's only oh. two in America I, I great list of I cities, don't know by the way by the way great list of cities so we're gonna learn a lot about Tucson soon yes we are and I didn't know that that was even in the qualify like that was even in the running for a top chef I mean I could understand if they went to Tucson as part of a Arizona top chef you know like they right, hit Phoenix Phoenix yeah. or, or or Tucson and and a couple other places in in Arizona but that one was a shocker and that, yeah, clear, I mean, clearly I mean in, in there with, with great sympathy clearly a, a, a concession they had to make for COVID. Um, for sure where you just don't want to be caught outside the country um gotta get a production outside the country i mean it, it, i imagine they had to stay domestic so uh we we feel you and it's as good a choice as any if you're going to go somewhere else um but uh yeah tucson uh is so, the is the dramatic uh, finale let's talk about nick here um i think nick's kiss of death here was that he said chipotle not chipotle uh, caught that on this episode um, that he misspoke. And even though he's getting, you know, who cares? He's getting like a fat check from Chipotle. So he can sit, call it whatever he wants. The money's money. Um, he just, the time management here really bit him in the ass. Really just could not get this, the bind. He forgot the binding to the cake. And that, and that was it. And that was Kevin, it, right? It looked I mean, like. Both of those dishes. The, yikes. Yeah. The fish cake was just the ugliest thing I've ever seen. And by the way, it was very funny too, because I, I, I was, I was amused when when both I think Stephanie and and Gail noted that actually the flavors were great because I was like I that thing is ridiculous it belongs <laughs> nowhere in a, a any sort of fine cooking environment and I bet it is just like delicious as slop like imagine that stuff in Tupperware having sat overnight and like you know you come home for a midnight snack and like I would have eaten the shit out of that and I bet it was delicious however obviously you're not going to get you're not going to serve Daniel Balud whatever the hell that mound of of stuff was and, and get away with it it reminded um, me you know what it reminded me of what biscuits and gravy yeah 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 that's right and you know what like i think stephanie eisar mentioned it is wish i was a little bit hungover to eat this food because some of this food uh, at the table was really you know hangover food it would have been nice to have after a late night and biscuits and gravy are right in that that category for me so this cake that wasn't really a cake at all I felt so bad for him because you know that he's been dreaming of this moment to serve a plate of food, of his food, to the likes of Daniel Balud, and this is what he comes up with. I was kind of heartbroken for him, but you know what? The baker man has got a lot of extra cash to you know wipe those tears with on his way home. Uh, he has done an amazing job in the quick fires. Um, Nick Nick has done. Uh, a really, really great job on this, on this season of top chef. He was, as I mentioned, pretty 
high up in this uh, in this season. He didn't finish in the bottom until episode 11. He has just an amazingly high floor. And I think we could have seen this coming is that, yes, he has a high floor as a competitor, a chef testing on this show. But in terms of the ceiling, um, Nick hadn't really hit the same uh, apexes that that Buddha and Damar and Evelyn. And now we're seeing with Sarah. So, Nick, um, it's sad to see him go, and it was really touching to see how how important he was on the show to Damar. Damar is usually just as cool as the other side of the pillow, and here he is getting emotional at the judges' table, and it really it really shows how much this guy was beloved. Uh, a, a front runner, definitely for um, for the fan favorite on this up on this season of Top Chef. Yeah, and, and you know, look, as someone who has criticized the season is soft. I mean, one of the things I do like are earned, true earned moments of emotion, and that was clearly one of those earned emotion moments. And as you said, not the least of which, because in a, in a show where crying has become sort of just a, a, a almost weekly occurrence, you know, Nick's stoicism and sort of clearly how moved he was by his relationship with Nick, who just has just great older brother in. Uh, you know, energy and also just one of the great Zen masters of recent years. I mean, I loved his, I mean, finishing fifth is excruciating in this show, right? I mean, yeah. Is, you don't have a chance to is, come back in the competition. You're just man, going home. Yeah. You know, and, and, and yet just how pleased he was. And I'm actually, he's a guy who I, I will really be curious to see his career. Um, and I hope, you know, I, I know the, the, the task of getting capitalized as a chef. And I imagine it's much harder in a, in a place with less wealth, like Mississippi is, is really hard. I mean, it's the biggest challenge chefs have is just how do you capitalize the projects that you really are passionate about? It is hard to open a restaurant. It is hard to start a business. Like the capital outlay for equipment and and everything is just enormous. In a company where in, a, in an industry where it's just hard to turn a profit in general, even if you are capitalized. So, like, I'm really curious to see what Nick does. Um, yeah, his. You know his his redfish was overcooked. Um, we talked about the the cake. Um, Demar, yeah, Demar was sort of in this weird kind of a technical error. Yeah, you got to salt the. I, I someone who does crudos, it's kind of my favorite thing to do. You know, I, I, I kind of got into it very much from the Top Chef Miami um, year, but uh, that was the year that they did Top Crudo, right? Jeremy was sort of. Oh, is he in Charleston? I forget which season he was. Yeah, I, I think. It, it was he's a Miami it was chef. Jeremy Ford who coined the this is Top Chef not top, or Top Crudo. I mean, I was just stunned, Kevin. The whole yeah. idea of fucking up a crudo. Well, no, you just like, have to salt the fish. Like you just have to. It, it's just something you got to do. Um, even it, irrespective it's one of the of staples on this show. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, and and so that was it. And then and then the I, you know it's funny. I had a hard time following the peanut graininess herb salad and, and then uh, Balut asked an interesting question when you're trying to kind of go for a peanut pesto and I, I wasn't sure kind of and I, I guess that was sort of therein lies the problem if, if a if as a viewer as an informed viewer you're watching saying I'm not sure what he's doing here um typically that, that's probably a bad sign um the Thai herb salad uh apparently the redfish was fine um but uh look he got lucky because Nick just was an absolute implosion. It wasn't one of these, hey, yep. someone's going go, going home for good food. Someone went home for bad food. Um, and uh, does it give you any pause about DeMar? Is it just sort of a, hey, it's, it's a one-off? Well, I keep thinking about his comment that he's holding back until the finale. And that he's got a bunch of things in his back pocket that he's willing to bust out and doesn't want to bring it out too early. And he got lucky. Like you said, this was this – was, um, some dishes that he could have gotten sent home for. Um, and I want to see him get back next, next week in the fi- finale in Tucson, uh, get, get to see Damar back at crushing these dishes. And, you know, um, it's exhausting. Sarah, let's talk about Sarah. Now, Sarah looked like she just hopped out of Niagara Falls, presenting those dishes, running around the kitchen. And she just, she just is really good on TV and she's just really good in the kitchen. She's fantastic. She is. Um, I'm so happy to see that she was not only in the top and she was excited to be in the top in this episode, but that she won. She beat Buddha um, the first time she's ever been in the top. And it really, we talk about this in the NBA all the time, Kevin, you peak at the right time and you can go on a run. And it looks like Sarah is peaking at the right time. I was terrified for her. I mean, pseudo kudos, a very hard concept to get your, head around pickled snapper uh the kraut broth 
kind of, I think, laced with catfish stock. And, and that was, you know, tofu is hard to do really well. That silky, perfect kind of Japanese, almost milky tofu. Uh, and then she comes in with a pastrami sandwich, which is just brilliant. I mean, smoking a red drum pastrami style, uh, carrot butter, and then doing gnocchi as sort of your, your, your bread element. That had potential for absolute disaster, particularly, you know, given the time management issues. Though she's clearly expert at, at time management. I mean, that's one thing that, that Last Chance Kitchen, you get your reps in there, you are going to be able to cook under fire. Yep. And um, I mean, I was just so pleased. It's such a great story at, at this point in the, in the competition. Uh, you know, people debate sort of the the veracity of Last Chance Kitchen, Loser's Bracket. Um, you could probably make a game uh, theory argument that, you know, why should Nick get punished without getting an extra life because he lasted longer, right? I mean, if what mm -hmm. you're saying is, hey, there's a loser's bracket. Well, when you play sort of loser bracket tennis tournaments, more individual competitions, everyone gets an extra loss, right? Like you don't, you don't stop that in the semis. Like you don't, you don't. And so I do think that that so is. You would prefer the re-entry into the competition go straight to the finals. Um, so like if you go, if you get bounced right before the finals, you still have an opportunity to I don't, go to the finals. No. And see, I don't know the solution because I do think there has to be a moment when the two tracks converge and you set, you kind of put last chance kitchen to bed. So I do think I, I, I don't, it's hard, right? Like I, I don't have a good solution. I'm not suggesting that Nick should be able to go play his way back in because, you know, this would be the argument that there should be no second chances, right? Mm -hmm. Um, now I also think that the show does a very good job of really making it hard to get back in. I mean, Sarah eliminated early had to, I mean, how many did she have to win Tom? Like, <laughs> yeah, like five or six. Yeah. To get back in and yeah, it's exhausting and she was able to do it and she withstood a, a very, uh, lackluster fishing day. So she didn't get inside her own head. She's, she's had that issue before where she kind of overthinks things. Um, and she hasn't had that issue whatsoever, uh, in this episode. And, uh, just to hit up Buddha again, I thought he might've won this episode yeah. with his dishes. Um, the steamed bull red fish with shrimp, shrimp farce. I didn't know what that was until I saw the little, um, the little lower third explanation. Um, were you familiar with that? dish before no no i mean it's apparently a a, a signature of balut uh, sort of the, the the elevated fish and chips but no i wasn't and it looks fantastic yeah he again the scholar the scholar of buddha is really shining through at this point where he knows his chef what they want the history of the the chef and he's able to call an audible when he's not able to wrap the fish in that pastry or that potato he was able to call an audible and just do a little um you know topping of it and they didn't see they didn't see anything wrong with that they did, could not pick up that that was kind of a plan b for him and i think that just speaks to how good he is as a chef he's just He's just mowing it down. I mean, he's he's KD Warriors um, at this point. And yes, he didn't win this episode, but I thought it was a winning performance from Buddha. Uh, certainly winning caliber, doing a fish and chips um, that that just wowed the chefs. I think Tom said it knocked it out of the park. There was stunning. It was very satisfying. A little on the dry side for, for some, but uh, Buddha, nothing in this episode made me feel iffy about saying Buddha over the field. Um. Absolutely. And I still think you're right. Uh, Sarah, as good as she was, I mean, I'm not gonna say it's lightning in a bottle, but there's just a, basically he is just mowing it down. As you said, he, there is really no hesitation. He's the rare chef when things don't go well and he isn't able to idealize the dish as planned. He's able to pivot or even he's got so much margin, not for error, but like there's so much creative um, design in it that, hey, if you do 70% of that, it's still going to be the most creative dish they put down. Now, in, in this case, obviously, Sarah's were, but um, he looks really strong going forward. Uh, I mean, I, I also, I mean, I don't say closing thoughts on the actual competition, but was there anything else? I mean, is there anything to tip us off? I mean, basically, this has been a, an ongoing conversation. Can anybody challenge Buddha? And I'm just curious um, where, I mean, we talked about Evelyn. She's to, Now, this could be sort of a catalyst for Evelyn sort of a, Hey, you got to bring it. She's got the capacity to, I think. Yeah, she does. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think, think there's if limited I, range there. I, I actually think 
maybe this is recency bias, but considering what we saw in Last Chance Kitchen and we saw in this episode, I'm slotting Sarah as second in my power rankings right now to win it all. I have Buddha at the, at number one and Buddha at number two, actually, and Buddha number three. And then coming in right behind Buddha, Buddha, Buddha is Sarah, Evelyn, and Damar. I think Evelyn's got the right um, mindset. She has to she has to reach a little bit higher. Uh, Demar's been kind of spinning in his tires a little bit after this episode. Uh, it's been a while since he's been you know peak Demar. Uh, in the last he was he was on the low uh, two out of the last three episodes, and he he won in episode two and hasn't won since. So I actually think Demar is fourth. I can't believe I'm saying that in the final four here. What say you, Kevin? Uh- I actually think Sarah has the highest ceiling among the others. I also think she has the lowest floor. And I'm not willing to give up on Damar yet. I think there's been enough creative cooking. I think he's – this was a rare fundamental error uh, in terms of the, assaulting the, the, the crudo. But I, I still think if you gave me probabilities, I would have him as a slight favorite on the second just because he tends to be a little more ambitious than Evelyn. I think Evelyn has the capacity to be ambitious. We'll see if she can do it. I mean, I just thought her instincts to play, I mean, literally the two safest things you can do. It's not that stews aren't great, but stews are stews for a reason, right? They're, they're almost impossible to screw up. You can get dinged for a lack of depth, because, for a lack of time or a lack of seasoning or, 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 or your stock isn't rich enough, whatever it is, or your roux isn't there. But I, I just think I was, I was, I was really disappointed. Um, and, and I think she knows it. And, and I think that's, it's, I don't think it's a congenital flaw of hers. I, I, but I do think Damar is probably my second with the caveat, as you said, I think Sarah does have the highest ceiling, but but she is prone to error. Um, and you know, one of the problems with the overthinking is I don't think it was a coincidence that, though this clearly wasn't a quick fire, the time constraints for two dishes, as and she said this herself, didn't lend her the hazard of I'm going to overthink this. What do you ha- What happens in the finales, Tom? You get a ton of time. Mm-hmm. You get a ton of time, and she is, for whatever reason, one of those chefs who sort of can think her way into a, an incoherent answer. And and I do worry for her that she is best with time constraints. She has an advantage over the other chefs, with the exception of Buddha, who again, obviously, in addition to all the other things he does well, extremely good manager of time. Speaking of time, a few things before we head out here. One is the overall standings. I am behind 173. You have 171. I have 103, which means that is a 68-point gap, Kevin. Insurmountable. You've clinched the fantasy season champion of the Pack Your Knives. Top Chef Houston season. You have gotten the crown. It is insurmountable because even if I win next week, okay, I get 10 points, and if I get another win with Buddha for 25 points with the, the championship, that's only 35 points. I got to close another 27 points. You would have to lose 27, and even if you have two chefs sent home in the next week, that's just a minus 10 overall. Kevin, how does it feel? I mean, look, I wish I could take some pride in the fact that like I drafted well when I didn't. I mean, I guess you could argue Sarah was a good instinct, but I'm only getting 13 points from her overall. Uh, the bottom line is I got lucky. Um, you didn't get lucky. Uh, you didn't get unlucky. You, uh, we just both picked terribly, and I look forward to seeing our correlation score. <laughs> well, you uh, got right. <clears throat> you, what you overcame, 20. Kevin. I uh, just want to talk to you. In the first quarter, you were uh, you were outscored by twenty points with your selection of Robert, and uh, you know, as your first pick. And I'm just wondering, you know, how were you able to overcome that adversity there? With Who's selecting Robert? Robert in the first run. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Robert? I don't even remember Robert. Well, that was like seven seasons ago. Um, so Buddha, Buddha has 72 overall fantasy points, um, not including that's that's including the first episode, which didn't include that didn't get counted for our actual fantasy game. But he has 72 overall points. Um, Evelyn with 56, Demar with 44, and Sarah. You know, coming close with 18, uh, you know, she's going to be like Rich Strike in the Kentucky Derby, uh, admitted into the final episode right before the finale and coming on strong. Maybe she can uh, internalize that horse that won the Derby out of nowhere. Um, So, Sarah, 
best of luck as you, you have re-entered the competition. Win this episode. Go into uh, the finale with uh, with Tucson, and we're at the, down to the final four. And before we head out, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we asked some verbo yes. suggestions from our audience, and we got some really good candidates. I just wanted to shout out a couple here and get the Kevin Arnovitz take, the judges' table take on these verbo selections. Let's start with Shannon. At oh the insanity uh, said would seriously just chill in this until the money ran out and then some. She sends us a link with an independent villa with a private pool. Uh, let's see where is this location? I'm trying to figure out. Oh, it's the oh, it's Greece. Oh. It is the Ionian Islands. And and see, I can't speak to this, Tom. You are the Greek guy. Greece is like the coolest place I haven't been, and I'm kind of saving it with Eric. What, what I want to do is. So this is my my plan with Greece. I want to um, when the Olympics foolishly come to Los Angeles in 2028, and my and my city is bankrupted, trying to cover the um, just the overdrafts of, of of what they have to shell out for security budgets and everything else. Only a dumbass city would ever take the Olympics at this point. Uh, I'm going to rent my house near Central Los Angeles on the hills for a fortune to a Saudi prince. And we are going to take that money and I'm going to go to the Greek islands and I'm going to rent one of those yachts where like there's somebody to like cook for you and do all the other stuff where you just go swimming in the, in the ocean and you come up the ladder and there's like a whole fish waiting for you. Um, so, but I can't speak to this location other than it looks like a brilliant idea by Shannon. What do you, what do you say? You have, you're, you're of Greek descent, Tom. Oh yeah, this is, this is a beautiful place. I've been there and it's fantastic. It's, you know, when you when you go to Greece and the islands, it's just a different world. You almost feel like you're in a different universe when you go there. There's nothing quite like it. And this one, it's an intimate one-bedroom property, ideal for couples. There's a pool. Um, you're on the top of a volcano, Kevin, here in this island and it's just you're it's it's just insane the view that you have waking up uh as as classic greek island is just the white um everything the buildings are white and then you have the blue it's just perfect so i love this choice from shannon thanks for sending that and appreciate the submission to the show let's see what else we have here um we have a few suggestions yeah let's do zach let's do zach Zach, we have a few suggestions from Zach Lubarski. He says, my ideal vacation is seven nights in Tokyo in this Verbo, which is about $2,000. So he's burning $2,000 on the first spot. Give me your scouting report on Tokyo in this particular one. Right. So, so just to, you know, let's take it as a whole. He's got seven nights in Tokyo, five in Kyoto, um, plane to beach in Okinawa, uh, and then finally to Sapporo up in Hokkaido. Uh, which is just, I mean, this is the greatest trip. I mean, I, Japan is still my all-time favorite. Um, Zach, if you go and stay at that place in Ginza, which is the neighborhood you've selected, um, I want to give you a recommendation. There is a sushi place called Sushi Otaru, O-T-A-R-U. It is on the – so one of the crazy things about Tokyo, especially in like the Ginza area, are these very narrow, tall buildings, like 12-story buildings that are like the size – the width of an elevator. And you kind of walk – I mean like a restaurant will be on like the 10th floor. There will be like a dental office on the 7th and like some insurance <laughs> office. And I'm like, oh, look, like one of the better sushi restaurants. And so what's great about Otaru is he gets all of his fish, every piece of it flown in daily from Hokkaido. He only serves fish from Hokkaido in the north. And it is probably one of the two or three best sushi experiences of my life. So so if you go, Zach, to Ginza, go eat at Sushi Otaru. Bit expensive, as you can imagine. Kind of worth kind of averaging down on ramen and noodles for a few days. Um, however, I want to make one recommendation. As much as I, I like your your Ginza property, um, a wonderful neighborhood. Ginza, I wouldn't say it's sterile, but it's it's definitely where the wealth is. Um, it, it's very nice um, and pretty central. But I really like kind of this triangulish constellation of neighborhoods on the other side of town. And, and the three neighborhoods are Ebizu, Nakamaguro, and Daikanyama. And it's just like they're my favorite Tokyo neighborhoods. Mm. They're a little more low rise. There's these great bookstores and cafes and the street lifes. It's a little greener than Ginza. Ginza's kind of very concrete. And um, I, I would say if you can find a place over there, I think you still make it to Ginza. But in terms of your locations, I think like that's where I love to hang out in, in Tokyo. And I think you would absolutely love it. Um, there's a 
bar in Sujunku, not far from there, called the Vows Bar, V-O-W-Z. And it's a, it's a bar that's run by honest-to-goodness Buddhist monks. Like this isn't a shtick. This is not a drill. This is not like a theme bar. It is where the monks hang out and drink. And, uh, and it's down a little alley, um, the Vowels Bar. So I, I highly recommend that. Um, definitely eat in your uh, department store basements. That's a great place to get lunch any day. Um, but yeah, and, and then I love his choice in Kyoto, which is next, Tom, because I think the cool thing about Kyoto is don't stay in like a Western hotel. Go stay, and this is very this is the verbo version of that. Go stay in a ryokan. And that's like those hotels where you sleep on the tatami mats and like you get served dinner um, on the little low table when you come mm-hmm. back in from your bath. Um, there's like the robes. And, and I, I do think having the experience in, in Kyoto of staying in a ryokan or, or ryokan adjacent, this would be a, the closest thing to a verbo, um, a ryokan, definitely go traditional. I think it's a brilliant choice. I'm dying to get to Hokkaido. I've never been. I've never been to Okinawa, though I'm a beach guy. Um, I, you know, I've never heard much about the beaches in, in Okinawa. They don't, they don't get the kind of press that the Thai beaches or the Malaysian beaches in, in that part of the world, obviously much farther south or Indonesia, obviously, but, uh, I know very little, but Kyoto and Tokyo are just knockouts, Tom. I, I just wrote that all down and I think we should get an intern who just listens or maybe a, a listener can just flag all the scouting reports that Kevin has done on this show and restaurants he's been to and just have like one giant pack your knives scouting report. That would be amazing because what you just did was amazing. Well, no, I'm also, you know, while we're at it, I, I, you know, I've been on the road for over a month now <clears throat> and you actually asked me this. We never got to it, but we have a little shorter episode. We're getting down to the final five and stuff. A, a couple of restaurant recommendations in San Francisco. Um, Ernest is uh, down uh, kind of a little south of Mission-ish area. Um, one of my best meals of the playoffs. I absolutely recommend it. Um, I also, uh, um, Gavin Kaysen's restaurants in Minneapolis continue to be just the greatest spoon and stable anyone in the Twin Cities area like and also great happy hour bar menu. Um, I went with our buddy Miles Brown. I love a good happy hour bar menu. Oh, and oh, it was great. And then um, a Sioux restaurant, S-I-O-U-X in Minneapolis yep. called You Owami. mentioned this one. That, that was like just one of the coolest restaurants. Yeah. Just and, and by the way, I know it gets all the hype in the world. And Amin and I were talking about this a while back. Your your your, your co-host Amin Hassan on um, NBA Illuminati. Um, Pizzeria Bianco is still <laughs> believe the hype. It's still the greatest lunch ever. Yeah. Um, had the chicken at Zuni Cafe um, last uh, Sunday. Old standby in San Francisco. It takes one hour and five minutes to make that chicken. Um, it is one of the most famous roast chicken dishes in America. Still got it. The panzanella salad is great. Um, I know it's an old standby. I'm not making, I'm not breaking any news here saying go to Zuni Cafe for the chicken, but it's good to remember. And then last night on Guerrero Street, Tom, a little sushi tapas, Japanese tapas place called Finikusu, F-E-N-I-K-K-U-S-U, little neighborhood spot, Japanese, um, honestly, one of the best meals of the year. And as casual as anything, like they got a takeout operation next to me and, you know, they're boxing all this stuff up. There's no, it's not like there's great ambiance though. It is kind of classic. It reminds me of the kind of place you would eat in Tokyo. And San Francisco does these places very well. You know, I'm a Los Angeles guy and we got great food, but there are certain restaurant experiences that San Francisco does exceptionally well. Ernest would be one of them. Um, and, and, and Fenikusu is another. So, um, it's been a great, uh, dining experience i'm going to dallas on saturday i got some cool stuff i'll let you know about next week uh planned but uh this is the best part of the playoffs tom it's not only watching steph curry warm up um two hours before the game and sitting right there but also getting to have off night dinners is just a a pleasure san fran's a great place to do that um not a perfect city but uh they do some things really well and i should also mention here that kevin and i had an amazing just an unforgettable meal at Lazy Bear yes. in in San Francisco a few years back, which is uh, I think has a, a lineage of top chefs run through that place, uh, including Joe Sasso, Joe uh, Sh- Joe Mustache. Um, it's it's 
it's such an experience. It feels like you're going to the theater or a Broadway play because they just put on a, a performance and it's not shtick. It's not a gimmick. It, it really does make you feel like you're royalty. So yes, it's going to be a little pricey, but that's what you pay for is just the experience as well as the food. And you get to take home a little booklet, which is adorable, that has all the little menu. And it's just I like still got the, it. Yeah, I have, I'm looking at it right now in my office. So Lazy Bear in San Francisco, also a great joint. And um, I'm excited as as much of a curveball it was to see Tucson as the finale. There is uh, the Restaurant Wars is the best episode of, of Top Chef. But right behind there is when they get to go to t- their final spot um, for the for essentially the championship here. So can't wait for that. Um, and thank you all the listeners who sent in their, their verbo suggestions. I think Kevin could do this, uh, in his oh, sleep and it's just, we great. should have a, we should have a, like a, a spinoff podcast called for traveling where we just like, we do like verbo porn, you know, and just kind of review it. Like, I think that would be, that would be great. Traveling is great. I, I look forward to the world truly opening up again. Um, I prefer the is, name verbo porn, um, verbo for porn? a podcast yeah, rather than call for traveling. Porn. That's yeah, verbo a great porn. title. That, that would get me <laughs> <laughs> Tom, closing thoughts, closing thoughts, closing thoughts. Um, it's been, it, it's been a wild road, uh, for Nick. Sorry to see him go. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm so happy for him that he was able to, you know, win those quick fires and get that cash, the Baker. Uh, but I really do feel that this is the best four chefs of the show. Maybe, maybe Jackson, you throw him in here, but, um, I'm really excited to see who comes out on top, even though I kind of feel like, we all know it's Buddha. Buddha's gonna win this thing. I'm just it's it just feels like it's destiny. This guy is is unreal. Uh yeah, it, it, he's a fun chef to watch. And with Sarah back in, you know, I'm I'm a little rejuvenated on the season. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks. I've been a little down. I got I got some structural conversations for for Top Chef, a show I love and still love more than the other. But um, but I am actually truly excited for the finale. Um, they got some really interesting contestants. Uh, they've done a you know, it, I think the cream has risen to the top this season, and uh, we got we got a great great finale lineup here, uh, and four very differently contrasted chefs too. I mean, I think that's the other cool thing for Tom Haberstrom. For mega producer Anthony Mays, good gracious, I owe you a meal. And this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. 